Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Isaiah 40, beginning with verse 9. Isaiah 40, beginning with verse 9, and we'll read through verse 31, which is the end of the chapter. Hear now God's Word. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in measure, and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then? Will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases in strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The scripture reminds us of, of how careful we need to be with our comparisons. And it reminds us of the, the surpassing greatness of our God. And, and to what will we liken him? And that's what's behind the first paragraph of of chapter 7 in the Westminster Confession. That's what we're looking at this afternoon. It's found on page 109 in uh, your Forms and Confessions book. This is a, a new chapter that we're starting. We just finished the fall of man and sin and its punishment. Now we, we, we step back just a little bit. So we, we've looked ahead at the fall of man. Now we're stepping back to consider how things were we're started at creation. And we begin this afternoon considering the, the participants or the parties in this covenant. We're just going to look at the first paragraph. The distance between God and the creature is so great that even though rational creatures are responsible to obey him as their creator, yet they could never experience any enjoyment of him as their blessing and reward except by way of some voluntary condescension on his part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word as we unpack what this paragraph is saying about God's covenant. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word of truth. We're thankful uh, that we do gain insight into who you are as you've revealed yourself to us, as we have this special word for us to believe and to consider your mind and your thoughts. We pray that as we, we look at this truth, that you would take this word and plant it deep within us, but also give us uh, the privilege of your grace for our faith to rise and our eyes to see your majestic love and your authority. We cannot do that by looking at your creation. We can only do that by looking at you as our creator. So help us in this, this afternoon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we consider this chapter, chapter 7, we need to recognize that it contains one of the significant blessings of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's unique. And this confession summarizes the Bible's teaching on the covenant in a very clear and concise way. Now, this understanding of covenant, which is foundational to Scripture and foundational to our faith, is present in the other confessions but it's more by implication than it is by direct expression. And that's one of the blessings of going through and having the Westminster Confession before us. It's one of these treasures that we should cherish with regard to the Westminster Confession. We, we have another confession, it's called the Belgic Confession, and they're very similar, and they, they touch on a lot of similar topics, but the Westminster Confession does develop 
in a, in, a, in a beautiful way, some further teachings and applications of God's Word. Boys and girls, when we think about the covenant, we've talked about this before, and we said a covenant is, is God's relationship with man. And there are a, a way to illustrate, or there is a, a way to illustrate the covenant, and to think about the covenant like the bones in your body. Imagine for a moment that you didn't have a skeleton. You would be only flesh and organs, a bit like a jellyfish. Well, we do have bones, and we do have a structure, and that's the character of the covenant. And yet we need to recognize without these bones, maybe we wouldn't be so ugly as a, a jellyfish. I learned in looking at animals without bones that there are some very beautiful animals that don't have bones. Butterflies, for instance, don't have bones. Or other animals that, that can do amazing things. You think of uh, the pliability of an octopus and the, the places they can get into or get out of as an octopus because they don't have bones. Not having bones doesn't mean we're useless. Bumblebees and earthworms, which play a vital part in, in our gardens, also don't have bones. And yet we do. And these bones give us a unique shape, a unique form, and a unique opportunity. I also learned that bones aren't there simply to give our body a shape. That it is actually your bone marrow that produces blood cells, red and white blood cells, and your platelets, which are vital for maintaining your immunity and allowing you to grow. You see, it does more than just give us shape. They're vital to our existence. And God's covenant with man is like the structure of a skeleton that gives a shape to our faith, but is also vitally important for our well-being. It's what shows the biblical character, what it means to follow God and to follow His Word, what it means to be reformed in doctrine and also in practice. This afternoon, I'd like us to consider from paragraph one, the parties or the participants in the covenant. And here it is, God and man. Particularly Adam, this comes up in the second paragraph. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works in which God related to Adam. And so this afternoon, we, we consider the parties of the covenant, God and man. And there's two points for us to think about. First of all, that there is an essential difference. But secondly, there is an extraordinary relationship. An essential difference and an extraordinary relationship. First of all, let's identify the difference. And it's part of our being. It's part of our core substance. That's what I'm getting at by essential. That it's, it's vital to who we are to recognize how different we are from God, even while God has created man in his own 
image. He's blessed us and endowed us with his image. And, and he's created us in this way. But is, Isaiah warns us in Isaiah 40 that one of the dangers we face as image bearers, especially since the fall, is the inclination to fashion God according to our imagination rather than how he has revealed himself in his word. That we make these comparisons about what we think God should be like. But Isaiah is warning us that there is an essential difference, and it's a difference that can be designated in this way. It's the difference between the creator who has fashioned and knows intimately and exhaustively everything, the creator and the creature. And we need to recognize as we, we go through this first paragraph that this distinction between the creator and the creature isn't a result of sin, that this essential difference between God and man is not the result of sin. This actually existed right at the beginning when Adam and Eve were created in paradise. Think about this for a moment, that this is an essential difference, that God is the creator, and man, no matter how perfect he was in paradise, was still a creature. Now let's do this by comparison. Think about the difference between us and a jellyfish. There are a number of differences. We have a different diet. We have a different habitat. But there's an essential difference as well. We have bones. They don't. But there's an even more essential difference. Because as humans, we have souls. Animals don't. We have been created by God with souls in his image. Man is completely different from all of creation. Because man has been blessed by God. Psalm 8 reminds us of this. Why is man created just a little lower than the angels? What is man that you would think of him in this way? Why is it that man is so blessed? It's because he's been created in God's image. Now this is a, a fundamental difference for our understanding of who man is in creation. But here we need to recognize in the very first paragraph the difference between man and God is even greater than the difference between us and a jellyfish. In the category, and when we think about this creator-creature distinction, when we think about how different we are, notice it says the distance between God and the creature is so great there's a huge chasm between the creature and the creator. And when we think in these categories of the, the difference between God and man, we're actually more like the jellyfish than we are like God. Because in the category of creator and creature, we're still created by God. That's the point that Isaiah is making. That God is off the scales. There is no chart that can capture the character of God. 
There is no comparison between anything we know or anything we experience that can can help us perceive the wonder and the amazing character of God. Even the nations, if you compile all the nations, they're like dust on the scales. They're just a drop in the bucket. Imagine if you you could comprehend with your mind and could list all the differences between humans. If you could understand what makes us so amazing and yet makes us so unique. If you could decode all of our DNA as as they've done with computers, but if you could compile that, you still wouldn't, even if you could comprehend that whole compilation of all the uniquenesses of who we are as a creature, you wouldn't have a comparison with God. Here is the limits of our understanding. Here is the limits of our science. And here is the danger of idolatry. Because so often we think to relate to God, we have to relate Him on our terms so that we can understand Him. We make Him manageable and manipulable. This is what the idol or the craftsman does. He, he produces an idol. An idol is, is an idea of man about how he can relate to God. Makes God manageable. But it presents a violation of what God's Word teaches is an essential difference. No, that's not the point. The distance between God and the creature is so great. But notice the recognition. That doesn't mean we stop worshiping. Actually, rational creatures are responsible to obey Him as their Creator. By the very right of our being created by God, Every creature, every rational creature, this is holding before us the character of man as a rational creature. Rational creatures, by being right, by very right of their creation, are responsible to obey Him as their Creator. That man, as he was created, in all of his perfection, there was this responsibility of obedience. That's why beautifully the psalmist captures why all of creation. We we heard that in our call to worship. The mountains and the hills, the fruit trees and the cedars, the beasts and the livestock, creeping things and flying birds. He he goes through, through creation. He says, praise the Lord because you are created. Or Psalm 98 or Isaiah 55 verse 12 reminds us that, that, that the responsibility of every creature And as we we proceed up the the scale of being to to rational creatures, particularly, there's a responsibility to their Creator to, to worship Him. Rational creatures. As man was created in all his perfection, there was the responsibility of obedience. Never underestimate or never overlook the essential difference because God is the Creator. He is worthy. Full stop. He is worthy to be worshipped. Every rational creature should recognize that. That's the essential difference. 
God isn't just a composite of all of his creation. No, he is distinct from all of it. He's a completely different being. He's an essentially distinct being. And yet every creature has the rational and reasonable responsibility to worship him. But then, secondly, we need to consider the extraordinary relationship. The extraordinary. What would be ordinary would be for all every creature to recognize his responsibility to worship. But what the, the, the Westminster Confession is getting at in this first paragraph is something extraordinary. You see, God wanted more than a creaturely relationship with man. He had that with everything he made. He had a creaturely, creatorly relationship with all of creation, but he wanted something more from man whom he had endowed with his image. A creaturely relationship with their creator would be an ordinary relationship that God could expect. But instead, he establishes in paradise an extraordinary relationship. And this next phrase is worth a lifetime of contemplation as it tries to present to us the wonder of what God has established in paradise. Listen to what it says. The distance between God and the creature is so great that even though rational creatures are responsible to obey him as their creator, that's the ordinary relationship. Yet, and here's the extraordinary relationship. Yet, they could never experience any enjoyment of him as their blessing and reward except by way of some voluntary condescension. That voluntary condescension is a willing a coming down to man. Some voluntary condescension on his part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. God came down to man as a rational creature, as his image bearer, he condescended so that we could experience and enjoy him as our blessing and reward. This is not a creature-creator relationship. This is a covenant relationship. That even just being a very creature, a rational creature created with his image, I have the obligation to worship God. But even that wasn't enough for God. Instead, he comes down, and as he comes down, he wants to establish a relationship in which we can experience any enjoyment of him as our blessing and reward. And that happens, and that originates with God. You see, we don't climb up to God. He comes down to us. And the wonder is that it was voluntary. It was made according to His will, for His glory, for our perception that, that we're not responsible in our perfect estate to lift ourselves up to a higher plane to experience God as many of the Eastern religions teach. But instead, God came down to Adam. 
And here we recognize that as we we look at the parties, it's between God and man and Adam as a, a rational creature. These are not equal parties in the relationship. There's an essential difference between these parties that God is the creator and he deserves this whether, whether we, we recognize it or not. And we would have recognized that. God is that self-existent, self-sufficient, completely independent being that doesn't need to come to Adam because he needs something. And sometimes we think about that, 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 that it's taught that, that God had to save man so that we could worship him as though God needed his worship cup filled up. And so in order to accomplish that, he had to save man. That's not the case. God is complete in and of himself. He doesn't need something. And he didn't do this because he needed something from Adam. He comes not because he needs something, but he comes because he wants to give us something. He wants to give us the blessing and reward of experiencing the enjoyment of Him. That's astounding. We were perfect. And yet God says, I have something more for you. I want you to experience the enjoyment of me, of the triune God, of the Creator, And so I come down to you and I will establish a relationship with you so that you can experience the enjoyment of me as your blessing and reward. Why is this so important? Why is this so significant for our awareness of of living in fellowship with God? Because what was lost in the fall is what we long for being restored. That's what we should target as our focus for salvation. What was so wonderful and blessed about the condition of Adam and Eve in Eden? There's a variety of ways of thinking about this. There's a variety of things that we can expect to be restored. Now, we know some significant things about Eden. It was fruitful. There's the splendid fruitfulness. There were no weeds. There was no destruction. There was the perfection. There was no sickness, no disease, no crime. There was beauty, no marring that happens over time, no decay, no dilapidation. Splendid realities. But you see, those are created characters. But so often, that's what we look for in heaven. That's what we want restored. We want to see fruitfulness. We want to see perfection. We want to see beauty. But those are all created realities. And that's the sort of heaven that many people, even Christians, are longing for. And it will be that. But there's going to be so much more. You see, the error of this thinking is that we're measuring heaven and we're measuring the relationship with God on our scale, not on His scale. And the blessing of Eden was more than its creational character of fruitfulness, perfection, and beauty. It was this covenantal character that that man could could experience 
the enjoyment of God as his blessing and reward because God came to him in a voluntary condescension and said, I want this relationship with you. Amazing. This is something more than a relationship between a creator and a creature. It's a personal, powerful, profound, spiritual relationship. Don't forget the difference. The distance between God and the creature is so great that without this condescension, we could never experience God the way we can when He has come down to us. This isn't talking about after the fall. This was in paradise. How wondrous are the parties. Man in his perfection and God in his splendor was willing to come to him. So people of God, as we reflect on this reality, what are you longing for? What are you looking for? How are you anticipating heaven? How are you anticipating salvation? What do you think was the beauty and splendor of Adam and Eve's existence in paradise? Was it paradise itself? Or was it the Creator and the covenant God of paradise who's been pleased to express this relationship with Him by way of covenant? This is a structure that will give significance, stature, and strength, immunity, and well-being to our faith as we stand in awe of the wonder of what is restored in Jesus Christ. But first, we need to consider, and we hope to, the next time we look at Westminster Confession chapter 7, the character of that first covenant, which is commonly called a covenant of works. That way in which man could experience his Creator as his blessing and reward. That's our God. Who will you compare Him with? There is no comparison. He's off the scales. And yet in the wonder of His grace, He makes known to us how He relates to us. That's our God. And that's His relationship with us. Amen.